excellent day for an exorcism. I mean, I'll never forget seeing The Exorcist in Westwood at the National. I stood in line with my friends. I think that's the last movie I stood in line that long, like for like hours. And then we went in and the movie had been out like a week or two weeks. And it was a sensation and papers were full of people vomiting and fainting and stuff. And we all go in the theater. It was a, a packed 1100 seat house. And I'll, it was electric. And when the the lights went down and the curtains opened, the whole theater went, whoa. I mean, <laughs> everybody was so scared before it started. That was probably the, the most spectacular audience reaction I ever saw. I mean, people were screaming and it was it was very exciting. I don't believe in... Satan or the devil, you know, or Jesus for that matter. And it's, or God, you know, I'm an stoned atheist. And yet, during the film, I remember when Max von Sydow showed up, I thought, oh, thank God. Welcome to Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi. I'm David Kling. And I am Troy Harkin. That clip you heard off the top of the show was the voice of director John Landis. He, of course, gave us the legendary films An American Werewolf in London and The Blues Brothers, among other things. The clip comes courtesy of Mick Garris, a legend in his own right, and Joe Russo, who together produced the excellent podcast Postmortem with Mick Garris. Uh, the, the Landis clip comes from episode number 137 of Postmortem. Uh, check out their show. You will not be disappointed. Thanks again, Mick. And this is our first episode of season two. Today's episode looks at The Exorcist. This is part one of a two-part episode. We are recording it on Saturday, October 2nd, 2021, and scheduled for broadcast on Saturday, October 16th. We have a special guest, Valentino Asenza, who is a poet, a broadcaster, a sports fan, and an expert on The Exorcist. Before that, Troy will give us a spoiler alert. Okay, are you ready for this, David? Here is our new spoiler alert. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Thanks, Troy. We're recording this session via Zoom. In the interest of transparency, I have known Valentino for two decades. Troy has known Valentino for two years. Let's introduce our special guest. Valentino Asenza has been a published poet and performing spoken word artist for over the last two decades. In that time, he has released four chapbooks and performed all over Canada and the U.S. Valentino has been a co-host and co-producer of Howl on CIUT 89.5 FM where he has interviewed names such as George Elliott Clark, Anne Michaels, Denise Donlan, Ron Sexsmith, and Margaret Atwood. Welcome, Valentino. 
Hey, thank, thanks so much for having me, guys. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you, too. Good to have you, Val. Um, before we get into our Exorcist episode, Troy and I would like to know about your early genre loves and all-time faves. This is something we like to ask our guests. We want to know how you were first introduced to the speculative genre, whether it be the written word or its cinematic universe. Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi is a look back to when we fell in love with the speculative genre to call these times with fondness and affection. I think William Peter Blatty said it best when he said, I have never read horror, nor do I consider The Exorcist to be such, but rather as a suspenseful, supernatural detective story or paranormal police procedural. Valentino, what was your first speculative genre memory? Yeah, I, I think for, I don't want to be cliche, but I think the the first uh, the first speculative genre memory was the first movie, and that basically got me into movies, and and that was that was that was Star Wars. I think my my mom brought it to me on on VHS, and um, because at that time you had pay TV, so someone recorded it for her on uh, on first choice, and um, uh, and then I saw I saw this movie, and it was just like. I, I I didn't understand what what was going on, like this this scroll of letters at the beginning, and these this little ship being chased by this massive ship, and the first people to be speaking in the movie were two droids, um, and then of course there was um, the introduction of Darth Vader um, after like this huge laser fight that happened, and you just knew that Darth Vader meant business. You knew that. Like I've never, I don't, I don't think there's been a more um, uh, exemplary introduction of a villain ever. Um, and I mean, it, it was just to me, it was just, it was the most expansive kind of story in terms of imagination. Because after that, when you saw a movie, you know, you had, you had, you saw Star Wars, and and your your imagination was so elastic, and you'd see other movies and see how much of that envelope they could push in terms of imagination. So I know it's cliche, but episode four, a new hope was, was my first speculative genre memory. And, and it basically, it was the movie that got me addicted to movies. Uh, Excellent Valentino. That's, that's quite the memory, but what was the first speculative genre thing that you actually fell in love with? And it's okay if it's also that star Wars film and why did you fall in love with, with it? Yeah, I, I think, I think, uh, so, so, like, if anyone asked me what my favorite movie of all time was, it's, it's The Empire Strikes Back because Star Wars had, like, set one level. And I'm like, okay, that's one, that's, that's, that's one level. And it was an awesome level. And then The Empire Strikes Back comes out and it goes beyond. So, like, you, you, you first heard about lightsabers, then you heard about the force. Then you heard about Wookiees. Then you heard about Millennium Falcons. You get to Empire Strikes Back, and all of a sudden, it's new everything. So it's a new environment. It's a snow-filled landscape at the beginning. And one, I think one thing that just jumps out at me, and I was just in awe, I was just in utter awe, is the Imperial Walkers. Okay, so like the Imperial Walkers are just, and you're like, what are these things? What are these things? And it's like... I was just blown away. I was just completely, I mean, I, I, I was, I was, I was so in awe of the Imperial walkers. I was like, I was scared for, you know, the good guys, like for, for Han and Leia, what like, would they, would they prevail? But I was just so fascinated with these, with these Imperial walkers. And it was to me, it was like, it wasn't surprising. It was just pegging off like these rogue ships that are trying to attack it. It was for me that was that was like the the one thing that I just thought was you know beyond my scope. It was it was just so unreal to me. Yeah, I remember seeing that at the Town and Country uh, cinemas at uh, Young and Steels when when the film first came out. Saw it with my best friend, and during that scene, there was this moment where uh, you see the the smaller Walker, right? Right. And, and, <laughs> as, right. and as soon as we saw it. We both said at the same time, a baby one, <laughs> and which which we still laugh at today. That that you know it occurred to us and we said it in unison. But uh, yeah, Empire is definitely my favorite of all of the Star Wars films as well. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and strangely enough, they actually were going to do a spinoff with Chuck Norris called Texas Imperial Walker. <laughs> I'm just partly <laughs> kidding about that. Um, we would like to get into your all-time genre faves. Here are some rapid-fire questions about your favorite genre things. We are just looking for titles, but if you feel the urge, you can expand a bit. We do wish to get to talking about The Exorcist soon. Troy, take it away. You ready for rapid fire there, Val? Let's go. Let's go. Okay. Yeah. Pew, 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 pew. Val, what is your favorite genre movie? Yeah. Okay. So my, my favorite genre movie if we're, is, is Empire Strikes Back, for sure. All righty. How about your favorite genre TV show? Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah. Uh, and you have an all-time genre TV episode. Yeah, most definitely. The Inner Light from uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, 100%. Very good. Uh, how about uh, your favorite genre novel? Uh, genre novel for me would be Tagana by Guy Gabriel K. Oh, excellent. Mm-hmm. Uh, favorite genre shorter work, like novella or uh, short story? Yeah, uh, for for that one, th- for that one there, I I I I was trying to think of uh, like I I anytime I read any sci-fi or fantasy, it would always be uh, a sort of a bigger kind of of mm. work, unless it was a comic. So unfortunately, I don't have one for that one there. Okay, how about your favorite genre author? Yeah, I, Tolkien. It would be Tolkien for me. Okay, um, genre theme or concept? Do you have a favorite? Yeah, I always, I, I, it's, it's sort of like uh, the Matrix. I kind of like when you're in the middle of something where you don't know exactly what's going on, how, how it starts, where something like you're always trying to figure out things in the middle of something, you know? All right, uh, let's continue. Do you have a favorite genre, theater production or musical? Uh, I, would say, uh, I would say No Exit is, it was, would be my favorite play. Like in terms of a play, I would say that it would be No Exit. Alrighty. Uh, how about your favorite comic book series or graphic novel? Yeah. So DC came out with a four comic book series called a death in the family oh. from when, uh, uh, Jason Todd, um, who played, who was the second person to be Robin, uh, uh, when, when he died, that four comic book, uh, series. And I have them still, uh, that, that was by far my favorite series. For right, sure. and a death in the family wasn't that the one where there was a phone in as well, where you could vote if you wanted Jason Todd to live or die? I believe. Uh, yeah, there, there. I, I believe. Yeah, I believe that's right. I like he, he wasn't. He appeared in a few issues, and a lot of people didn't like him for some reason. Like the people did not like him. He well, had he more was of an brash. attitude. Yeah, he, he was brash. He had an attitude. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't. He wasn't like Dick Grayson. Did where, where where Dick got along. Jason was was brash. He was he was a bit of a show off too in a lot of instances. Um, I didn't participate in that poll, but I, that 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 series really affected me pretty huge. Yeah, for sure. And now, just quickly, it's funny because obviously audiences are now ready for a brash Robin because we've had Damien for a number of years, and and he's quite edgy, right? Yeah, for sure. For yeah. Sure. Okay. What's your favorite genre poem? Genre poem, man. I'd have to go way back to the art bar days jason taniguchi uh wrote a poem and david i don't know if you remember this poem about he wrote a poem about the wrath of khan and he 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 wrote it was really interesting because what he would do is uh chekhov would respond to to khan saying you lie captain kirk was your host and then one of the crew members would turn to him and say you weren't even in that episode (laughs) like it was just it was just this (laughs) wonderful satirical dissection of the wrath of khan that would have to be my favorite for sure for sure jason is awesome yeah um so here's our a la carte section of favorites um I'm going to list off a few things. Uh, feel free to add in if you like, or just pass. You're not obligated to uh, give us any if, if, if you feel like not giving us any. Anyway, so they are favorite genre podcast, audiobook, documentary or mockumentary, nonfiction, filk, which is sort of like folk-related sci-fi songs, uh, and best fish which is a new one david and i have added just because we felt like it 
Um, okay, so for a podcast, I, 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 you know, I'm very new to podcasting. I, I, I don't have, um, uh, in terms of a genre podcast, I don't have one. If you guys could recommend one, though, I do. I, I, I would love to listen to one. Well, uh, from off the top, when I mentioned postmortem with McGarris, it's quite good, and there is also inside the Exorcist, which you might want to check out. Yeah, okay. And also the Galactic Cast, which is if you like Battlestar Galactica, there's a podcast called Galactic Cast that is quite good. Yeah, no, I've always been curious about uh, audiobooks. That's something that I haven't delved into. I've I've heard of some tremendous narrators behind some tremendous books, but I haven't dipped my toes into the audiobook yet. So I'm just wondering if you guys can recommend the best way to to listen to audiobooks. Well, I'm a big Audible fan. I've been doing that for a while. Dave, what did you think of you? You've been just sort of hooked up for the last little while. Yeah, and I've been listening to some of this stuff in preparation for our uh, podcast. So I did listen to William Peter Blatty reading The Exorcist about 12 hours, 51 minutes um, for that. I got that from Audible. I also uh, picked up The Dead Zone um, and uh, listened to that. So I'm listening to like one a month because that's sort of what I, I'm paying for. Uh, and I think they're they're quite useful. Right on. Yeah, f- for me, I love it just because uh, I find that I double my my book intake a year mm-hmm. with with Audible because I can listen to it at the gym, I can listen to it while I cook, and I can listen to it while I drive. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. Um, for for favorite documentary, I mean, again, I keep going back to Star Wars. There was a documentary that was made in the early nineties called from star Wars to Jedi. And it was just, it was just great to watch. It was really in depth. It was, uh, you know, they didn't know what to like. It was just little things. Like they didn't know what to do about Darth Vader's voice because David Prowse was in the, in the, in the costume. So you just heard this Scottish guy say the lines right a lot of the time before they put James Earl Jones's voice in there. I, 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 I love that documentary. Um, in terms of nonfiction book or essay, uh, there was uh, an essay that I wrote where it tied together all kinds of Stephen King references. So, like, it tied together, like, uh, characters that were in, let's say, uh, or referenced in, say, Cujo uh, that would show up in, like, uh, other other novels. Like, it, uh, it, it was when I was going to Brock, I went to one year at Brock for, for film studies, and I read this really fantastic essay, and I wish I could remember who it was from but it was really it was really awesome in that because not a lot you read a, a Stephen King book and he does this quite a bit where he'll he'll reference somebody from another book and you don't always get it right um, and and it was just kind of cool how how this essay tied together all the different um all, all the different uh, uh characters that are referenced throughout different novels um that is awesome in terms of Filk, the only thing that I can think of, the only thing that comes to mind is, have you guys ever seen the movie Inside Lewin Davis? Oh, love it. Yeah. So the, do you remember the song that Adam Driver and Oscar oh, Isaac yeah. were singing? At, Mr. At, President. Mr. Yeah. President, please. Or Mr. Mr. Kennedy, Mr. President, yeah. Mr. Kennedy. Yeah, don't send me into space. I I, I was oh, just thinking oh. about that. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay. So can you expand on this best fish uh, category here? <laughs> well, it sort of is what it is. It's kind of a uh, like, um, a, a little absurdist. Um, okay. And uh, uh, David, you want to say it? Yeah, yeah. I was the one that sort of suggested this because there. Was, I was thinking of an odd kind of thing, like the best kiss. You know, okay. remember when Spider Man is kissing upside down, right? And they reference that in oh, okay, the beginning of Tropic Thunder, where they have the four-time Oscar winner. It, 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 uh, for this and uh-huh. they have the winner of best kiss in the scene uh-huh. together. It was quite funny. Um, so instead of best kiss, I thought best fish uh, because uh, uh, Steve Martin had this famous photo of him with this fish out okay. of, outside coming out of his very dress, very dressed up. And it says best fishes. And then I was thinking of you know, that large fish in the early Star Wars episode where there's always one larger than another. And think of all the things underwater that, you know, okay. what is the best underwater monster or creature or best fish, the genre that, that you would pick. 
I, I'd have to go with, and it's a very recent movie, but I'd have to give a shout out to the shark in the shallows. Have you ever guys, nice. have you guys ever seen the shallows? I have not seen the shallows. Oh, it's a, it's a great movie. It's, I'll it's look for it. It's such ridiculous science fiction. Like my, 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 my fiance saw the movie with me and, and she's a science nerd. So she's watching this movie with me. The whole premise is, uh, Blake Lively plays the, the, the lead in it. And she goes and finds this beach in Mexico where her, her mom used to surf. So what happens is she goes to this beach and there, it's, it's pretty much abandoned. There's only two other people there. And what happens is she's surfing. Everything is great. Everything is great. But then what happens is while she's surfing, she wanders into a shark's feeding ground. And um, so the shark actually gets her, like bites her. There's a bad bite. But she manages to swim to like this little rock island. And um, and basically what the what the premise of the movie is, is she's on this rock island and the tide, it shows you like uh, like sort of a, a caption that right now it's low tide. But as the day goes on and time goes on, the tide is rising higher. So her whole dilemma is how is she going to get off the rock with this this shark who's who has an immense grudge against her just kind of circling around her the whole time so i would i would have to give a shout out to that shark i don't know who that shark is but that shark <laughs> was was tenacious it, it was uh, it was it made the movie so great nicely uh, it, played yeah it was wonderful yeah well it does sure. sound like tremors but on the water almost. yeah it it was actually you're right it's sort of like it's sort of like uh, uh, 127 hours meets tr- meets tremors. It was sort of the same thing because she doesn't have any food or water, right? During that time as well, right? Like, so, yeah, I would I would recommend it. It's campy, it's but it's wonderful to watch. It really is. All right. Uh, on to The Exorcist. Uh, Troy Harkin will give some background, set it in context before we get into a full discussion on it. Take it away, Troy. William Peter Blatty was born on January 9th, 1928, in New York City. He was educated at Jesuit schools and at Georgetown University in the District of Columbia. While studying at Georgetown in 1950, Blatty learned of the exorcism of a young boy in nearby Silver Spring, Maryland. He became fascinated with the case and later was in contact with the priest who performed the exorcism. He began researching everything he could find on the history of exorcism and hoped to one day write a nonfiction book on the 1949 case. But the exorcist who had freed the boy made Blatty promise that he would respect the privacy of the child who had been possessed. Bill Blatty began writing when he was young, and in 1966, he published the novel Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane. His writing was well-received, critically, though not commercially. Later in the 60s, he began working with film director Blake Edwards on movies such as Shot in the Dark. Blatty faced leaner times when the demand for comedies dried up, though. He decided to return his attention to the story of the possessed child. Perhaps he could rework the factual story into a drama and protect the privacy of the boy who had been exercised. Blatty's inspiration for the priest Lancaster Marin came from the Jesuit priest and author Thierry de Chardin, who was himself a paleontologist and would eventually die of a heart attack. Now, I think we all know the basic outline of the plot, but I'll read a little bit from the inside cover blurb of the first edition of the Exorcist novel. The terror began so unobtrusively they might have forgotten all about it. Noises in Reagan's room, an odd smell, misplaced furniture, an icy chill. Small annoyances for which Chris McNeil, Reagan's actress mother, easily found plausible explanations. The changes in 11-year-old Reagan were so gradual that Chris, busy filming a new picture, did not recognize for some time how much her daughter's behavior had altered. And even when she did, the endless medical tests that followed shed no light on Reagan's symptoms, which grew, in, which grew increasingly severe and frightening. It was almost as if a different personality had invaded the little girl. The very house thickened with the sense of an evil presence. Desperate, Chris turned from the doctors to Father Damien Karras, a Jesuit priest who was tr- trained 
as a psychiatrist and had also a deep knowledge of such phenomena as Satanism and possession. Was it possible that a demonic force was at large? If psychiatry could not help, might exorcism be the answer? A random meeting at a party in New York where Blatty pitched the idea for his novel led to The Exorcist being signed and later published in 1971. The film went into production in 1972 with Blatty acting as producer and screenwriter. William Friedkin was brought on to direct. At the time, Friedkin was riding high on the success of his film, The French Connection, which had won Oscars for Best Film, Best Screenplay, and Best Director. Blatty had presented a first draft of the script to Friedkin that was much more over the top, yet Friedkin insisted he stay loyal to his source material. As a result, the film feels very much like the novel in every way. The film opened on Boxing Day, 1973. Newsweek reported, on December 26th, the movie called The Exorcist opened in theaters across the country, and since then, all hell has broken loose. People were already looking forward to the film based on the success of the book, but no one anticipated the sensation the film would cause. Lineups formed around theaters everywhere, forcing some cinemas to add midnight screenings. But then news reports came of people throwing up in theaters and having miscarriages and heart attacks while watching the film. Theaters began offering barf bags to patrons. As well, stories began circulating that the film had been cursed. Nine members of the cast or crew had died either during the production or shortly after. There had also been a seemingly inexplicable fire on set one night when nobody was present. Some papers claim that after shooting the film, Linda Blair was forced to be treated in an asylum. This was not true. Despite the hysteria surrounding the film, it was a box office hit. It was the number two grossing film of the year, second only to The Sting, starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford. To date, it has earned $441 million. The original budget of The Exorcist was $12 million. It remained the highest grossing horror film of all time until the release of the adaptation of Stephen King's It in 2017. Though it is thought of as something much more than a horror film by its writer, director, and stars, in 1974, it became the first horror film to be nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Blatty won an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay, and the film also won an Oscar for Best Sound. It did even better at the Golden Globe Awards, where it won for Best Dramatic Film, Best Actress, Ellen Burstyn, Best Supporting Actress, Linda Blair, Best Director, William Friedkin, and Best Screenplay for Blatty. So the film was a critical and commercial success, as well as a cultural phenomena. Cinefantastique wrote, The Exorcist has done for the horror film what 2001 did for science fiction. Ray Bradbury called the film a wonderful love story. Unfortunately, in 1977, it was followed by a cash grab sequel by Warner Brothers. Exorcist II, The Heretic, was made without Blatty or Friedkin. It is considered one of the worst films of all time, earning a runner-up Golden Turkey Award, that is, runner-up to Plan 9 from Outer Space. In 1983, Blatty published a sequel to The Exorcist entitled Legion. The book focuses on Lieutenant Kinderman's investigation of a serial killer based on the real-life Zodiac killer. The novel sold well, and Blatty adapted the screenplay intending for Friedkin to direct what would be the proper sequel to their 1973 hit. But the two men had creative differences and Friedkin left the project. Blatty took over as the film's director. Blatty was hoping to call the film Legion, but the studio insisted on using the exorcist name as valuable intellectual property that would sell tickets. Blatty argued that there wasn't even an exorcism in his story. The studio then demanded one. Despite all of the studio interference, Exorcist 3 stands up as a worthy sequel to the original with great performances and moments of real terror. So-so prequels followed, as did a better-than-you'd-expect network TV series that aired in 2016 and 2017. William Peter Blatty passed away in 2017 at the age of 89. At the time of this recording, William Friedkin is still with us. He is 86. In 2017, he wrote and directed the documentary film, 
the devil and father Amorth, about an Italian priest who was the chief exorcist of the Vatican. And David, that is my exorcist file for you. Thanks a lot, Troy. Um, Valentino, can you tell us how you were first introduced to the exorcist? Yeah, so I mean, the exorcist was, uh, can you guys hear me okay? Because I did mute myself for a second. Yeah, yep. my apologies. Um, okay, so the exorcist was actually, it was sort of a peer pressure thing. I was in high school, I hadn't seen it at the time. And everybody, you know, we, we'd get into horror film discussions. And at the time, the scariest movie that I'd ever seen was uh, Pet Cemetery. So everyone was talking about the exorcist, exorcist, this exorcist, that. And um, <clears throat> uh, for me, it happened. It was I was up late. I like to stay up on Saturday nights and I was in my mom's basement and uh, City TV. You had Mark Daly's voice coming out for late great movies <laughs> and and he's like you know he's saying he's introducing the exorcist i'm like all right let's see what let's see what all the hype's about and um yeah i don't know I, it, <laughs> first time i saw it i was in a dark basement um <laughs> and i was i was by myself and um it legit it legitimately scared me it did it legitimately scared me um I started asking people about it after I'd seen it and they told me a few things. And, and I just remember two weeks after that, I went to a, a party that someone invited me to, and, you know, kids, kids get bored, teenage kids get bored at parties. So when teenage kids get bored at parties, what do they do? They pull out a Ouija board. And um, uh, when, once the Ouija board came out, I was gone. Like my mom would always say, if anybody's drinking, call me. You know, I'll come and pick you up. And I called her. I said, I, I want to go back home. She goes, are there people drinking? I'm like, no. There's uh, a Ouija board. There's a Ouija board here. So so anyway, I, I uh, yeah, I remember I, I, I was just, I bought in because I, I spent I spent a lot of my um, I spent a lot of my life living in Sicily, and it's a weird kind of dichotomy in Sicily between Christianity and 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 superstition. So like, um, and it's it's really weird because it's mostly you know, you know the, the the Catholicism, the Christianity over there, and then there's like a smaller percentage of superstition. Whereas if you go to New Orleans, where it's heavily populated with Sicilians there, it's the reverse, where it's more superstition and, and ritual over there and a little less Christianity. But I bought in. Like, I mean, I, I'd, I'd go to Mass every Sunday and, uh, and, be, and because I just, I loved hearing stories. And, and I mean, just, just seeing that movie... Yeah, it did its job. It it legit scared the uh, the the poo out of me for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I I know from our previous discussions too, like you have a Catholic background, so it probably resonated for you as well at a different level than it might not if you were maybe of another denomination, or certainly if you were maybe an atheist or an agnostic. No, no, no for sure. Like I mean, yeah, be, even even like the simple things of Father Karras going through actual mass rituals like he would say the same things that you know the priest at at sunday mass would say right like i I had no idea though what an exorcism was like i i I had i had no idea at all i didn't even know that this was a component of 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 the catholic faith but it certainly was and i was just like i was absolutely um yeah again i bought in i was terrified it was it was it was, you know, and it had me asking about it afterwards. Like it had me, yeah. had me questioning it yeah. afterwards, you know, like I don't think any other horror movies had me do that. Like I was, right. just, I, I was just, I, I, I was just wanting to know so much more about it, you know? Well, well, David uh, and I were talking about this a little, well, I guess more than a little bit. And, um, you know, this is the type of thing, like this film, I could probably see a shrink for a couple of weeks over. Um, but uh, so here's my background, Val, with it. So when I was, you know, I was a kid, I was a little kid when the film came out. I was a little bit younger than what Reagan would have been. Um, yeah, because it came out in 73. So I would have been nine, I guess, nine or eight. And um, so my very first exposure was hearing this radio ad. Somewhere. Between science and superstition, there is another world, a world of darkness. Nobody expected it. Nobody believed it. And 
nothing could stop it. I'm telling you that that thing that scares isn't my daughter. The one hope. I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. The only hope. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that. The Exorcist. Warner Brothers presents William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist. The Exorcist, directed by William Friedkin. The Exorcist, rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. So my first question after hearing this in the car with my mom was, what is demonic possession? <laughs> and my mom, who was a fairly recent convert to Catholicism, uh, said, um, oh, you know, demonic possession, that's, that's when, uh, you know, devil takes over your soul. And she said it very matter-of-factly, right? Right, and yeah, I, yeah. I was like, well, 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 what? You know? And because as a, anybody, but especially a kid losing control, you know, of yourself is an awful idea. And, and you know, especially if you're that young, you are all in if you are, you know, going to church. You're, you're all in. And mm. to think that that your soul, what you think of as your most prized possession, you know, it's it's in jeopardy. Uh, so uh, the whole PR surrounding that film just created, and, and and I've recently learned, you know, how I am not the only one, and like there are many of us out there that mm. as kids live through this. Uh, the film um, uh, critic from England, Mark Kermode, basically lived the exact same thing I did of like for the next six years or so being petrified of just all of the stuff surrounding the film. Mm. I would not walk by the, the family bookshelf without making the sign of the cross because that book was on, <laughs> was on the bookshelf, right. you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. And yeah. I would go to bed for the next two years, like putting myself to sleep saying the hail Mary because I was petrified that this could happen. Oh. And as I mentioned to David, usually if there was a horror film that freaked me out, my dad would say, well, it's just a movie. You know, it's just, don't worry about it. It's just a movie. Yet that summer in 73, imagine this now, Val, uh, in church during the homily once one, one day, the whole homily was about the exorcist and how the, the Vatican, homily, sorry, the homily was about the, the exorcist. Yes, yes. Because, <laughs> because they were breaking down how the Vatican had, uh, had overseen the film to make sure that all of the details were correct. Mm -hmm. And that how during the making of the film, there were two priests on, on uh, set at all times, again, to make sure all the details were kosher. Um, well, not kosher, but it, you know what I mean? And yeah. uh, um, so where generally when Frankenstein or Dracula or the uh, creature from the black lagoon freaked me out, my dad would say, it's just a movie. I had some of the highest authority figures in my life saying, no, this is legitimate. This is the real thing. This can happen. Be careful. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so this film always had a gravitas for me, you know, even before I saw it, that mm -hmm. uh, was just remarkable. And it wasn't until high school when I actually did like you did. I, I saw it. I had two friends who were like, no, we've also never seen it because we're too freaked out to see it. So we watched um, um, Nightmare on Elm Street and then The Exorcist and got through it. And we did it like riding a roller coaster. You know, it's like, let's do this thing. Let's, let's get on this thing. Right. Let's do it. And then we yeah. say we did it. Anyway, that's it for me. That's my little uh, my little psychotherapy session. Right on. Cool. Uh, so what we'll do is, uh, and thanks for sh sharing that, uh, Troy Valentino, about your first experiences of The Exorcist. Um, this is a two-part episode, and we are nearing the end of our time. So I think it makes sense to have the fuller discussion in the second episode where we can get into even more detail. But I think what we should do with this episode is finish with our segment these are a few of our favorite words uh, this is where our guest and troy and i select three sections of the work that we are looking at and read aloud our selections um, these would be sections of writing that each of us wish we had written ourselves and if it's all right i will start and then if you guys want to 
uh, pick me up afterwards. I'll just do my three sections that I've, I've picked. Um, the first one is one of my favorites. Uh, the phrase is, that's much too vulgar a display of power caris. And I've always found that uh, fascinating because that's the first scene, basically, the first time when Father Karras and confronts sort of the demon um, that's inside the child. And when he asks, you know, hey, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Karras. And the demon responds, and I'm the devil. Mm-hmm. Now kindly undo these straps. And Kara says, well, if you're the devil, why not make the straps disappear? And the devil has that perfect response. That's much too vulgar display of power cares, which to me speaks also to faith because you have to believe that the demon has the power to do that. And, but you, you're, you're there, you're the person who says, well, you have to show me to believe me. And the demon says, no, no, I don't. So I always liked that. Uh, also, later in the film, you know, the, the drawer opens and then it closes. And then he says, well, why not do it again? He says, well, you know, if I want to, I'll do that, but I don't have to. I don't have to be at your command. The second phrase I've got um, is um, you're going to die up there. Mm-hmm. And that's when the movie and the, and the book changes a bit because you start realizing just how serious and it really does this really dark turn because this is at a party that, that Chris is hosting. Yeah. And there's this astronaut named Captain Billy Cutshaw and there's various other people. And the fact that when Reagan just shows up and says to the astronaut, because the astronaut's planning on going back up into space, you're going to right. die up there. And then she pees right in front of everyone. Kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. Um, that for me was a moment when the film starts to beyond just the sound of the, the rats upstairs, which when I was rewatching, don't watch this when you have cats upstairs that are running around the, <laughs> the floor. That gave me the real heebie jeebies. The third section I have for a phrase just slightly longer. And this one is, I'll just read it. Uh, especially Important is the warning to avoid conversations with the demon. We may ask what is relevant, but anything beyond that is dangerous. He is a liar. The demon is a liar. He will lie to confuse us, but he will also mix lies with the truth to attack us. The attack is psychological, Damien, and powerful. So don't listen to him. Remember that. Do not listen. <laughs> and for, for for me, adding just one little bit. Can I can I end. comment on that? Oh, go ahead, David. Sorry, please, please. I have to tell you when when uh, when Trump came on the scene, that section is something that I thought of all of the time. <laughs> Seriously, I thought the demon is a liar. He will lie to confuse you. Uh, basically, that whole section. I thought this applies to that man. In- yeah. entirely. Anyway, sorry. Just I needed to throw that in. No worries. And then there's also um, a moment that really gave me chills, which was when Karis meets up uh, with Marin and they're in the house and they're going to be going up and Karis is trying to get in a word edge. He's just trying to provide information because Karis is also someone who's a psychologist. So what Kara says is, I think it might be helpful if I gave you some background on the different personalities Reagan has manifested. So far, I'd say there seem to be three. She's convinced, and he's actually continuing, but he's cut off by Father Marin, who immediately says, there is only one. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. is just so chilling. Yeah, I, I, I think that, uh, I mean... Uh, you know, for me, uh, what stands out too is is the is the use of power and how and how the demon refuses to be commanded. Like when uh, when the drawer opens and uh, and uh, Father Karras says close it, and then the demon says in time, right? Not now, in, in time. But then the, the one thing too that kind of that kind of uh, that sticks out to me too. And maybe it's because I heard it sampled in a song at one point. Is when Karis and uh, um, Marin are chanting, "The power of Christ compels you," like in in succession, "The power of Christ compels you." I I heard it. 
I heard it used in in sort of like this this indie rock song. Is this in um, Teenage Head? Um, disgusting. He's not going anywhere. Not till I'm finished with that. You understand? Just untie my hands. Let me free. Unto the power. The power of Christ doesn't compel anyone. Not a day. Understand? I think so. Yeah, I think that that's the song that I heard it used in, and it's like. Uh, but but in that scene specifically, it's just extremely interesting because they're talking at the demon, but there's some aspect of it too that that the way in which that they're 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 chanting it is so that they themselves hear it too, right? So they're right. chanting at the demon, but it's also like they're kind of trying to evangelize themselves mm. as well during this time. I thought, I, like, just for me, that's that's how it, that's how it played out. I also like some of the light, lighter-hearted moments too, when the investigator first approaches Karis, and and he compares him to uh, a type. He compares him to an actor. Oh, Brando. Then, Brando, and then before yeah. he leaves, he says, "No, you look like Salminio." Yeah, <laughs> I've decided yeah. you look yeah. like Salminio. That's right. You know? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and he yeah. calls him uh, Father Paranoia at one point. You know? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, 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 I thought there were so many striking moments of, of dialogue throughout the whole thing. You picked some really great ones, David. Like honestly. Uh, and by the way, uh, Val, uh, in one of the commentary tracks, I, I heard uh, Friedkin say that he had been told by, um, I guess, people within the church that. You know, despite the fact that it's called the Roman ritual, there's a series of prayers that can be used. And it's up to the priest, the exorcist discretion, you know, uh, what works. And if it's, if there's something that works, then you keep doing it. And, and so that's why they keep repeating, uh, the power of Christ compels you. Yes. Uh, because they feel like they're getting some inroads or something with that. Oh, interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Okay, I guess, uh, am I up then? Yeah. All righty. Um, so, there's, there was, you know, there's, again, there's a lot in this that I love. And one of the things that I find makes it a great read is we have a writer who, um, you know, began writing fiction and then began working as a screenwriter. And um, I've written a few screenplays, not produced, but I did study the form. And you have to be super tight with your writing and screenwriting. And that's what I love about his prose is it sometimes reads like, um, like a screen, a screenplay. Um, it's just really, really tight prose. Um, and so there's this one section at the end of, I guess, chapter three of the first part. Um, and this is it. I will read it. Um, Chris again found herself turning worried thoughts toward Reagan. She tried to watch television, full stop, could not concentrate, full stop, felt uneasy, full stop. There was a strangeness in the house, full stop, like settling stillness, full stop, weighted dust, full stop. By midnight, all in the house were asleep, full stop. There were no disturbances, full stop that night full stop end of chapter yeah and uh it's beautiful and i mentioned to david as well earlier that we had just done something wicked this way comes and it it sort of harkens back to some of bradbury's uh style um anyway love that section love that that approach um the guy his the form and content is just wonderful and uh i'm now turning to page 300 of my edition this one, this section gave me chills the first time I read it. Um, and, I, and I had seen the film first, so I had probably seen it a few times before I read the book. And this is uh, what has happened. Uh, the, the priests have arrived and they've been preparing themselves to go upstairs, preparing for the ritual. And Chris is watching. And this is Chris who has been, you know, wanting this to happen for quite a while now, probably 200 pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and uh, so the section is, uh, it just says, um, and the sound of a 
of a door coming open, they turned and looked below and saw Karis and Marin come down the hall to the stairs in solemn procession. Tall, how tall they were, thought Chris. And Karis, the dark of that rock-chipped face above the innocent altar boy white of the surplus. Watching them steadily ascending the staircase, Chris felt deeply and strangely moved. Here comes my big brother to beat your brains in, creep. It was a feeling she thought much like that. She could feel her heart begin to beat faster. And and I still get chills reading that mm. section because for the first time, this mother who has watched this horror unfold in her house with her daughter has a sense of hope. And, uh, and I just love that. Here comes my big brother to beat your brains in, creep. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean that that one of the things that made the movie so so scary I think too like I mean and and it's a it's a utility that's used in many horror movies but in this one here it's just accentuated is the isolation right it's like they're in that house and there's nobody else in that house but but this demon right you have you have a fridge you have a kitchen you have a dining room and upstairs in the bedroom is a is a demon so like it's it's not necessarily much of a home it's not like you don't want her to go back in the house when she like when she says goodbye to somebody at the door she comes back in the house and it's like no 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 go somewhere else go down the street to a bar or something don't go back in you know, it's just right. that, that isolation, that sense of isolation for me is just for me that, that, that that's the eeriest thing, because then you turn the movie off and you're by yourself in your house and who knows what rooms are safe. Right. You know, exactly. That's our Exorcist episode. Part one. We will be back with Valentino for the second part. And remember to catch us on your favorite podcast provider. And when you do, remember to like and subscribe. Every one of those helps us. Our website is two numeric two of dot ca. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at two old farts sci fi. Again, that's a numeric two at two old farts sci fi. And on Facebook, we are two old farts talk sci fi. Tell a friend. And I am David Klink. And I am Troy Harkin. See you all for our next episode of Two Old Farts. Talk sci-fi. Sci-fi.